This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Time in the Yellow King role-playing game. The Skin Affair. Bella Pock Weird Science. And Papoose. It's the critical moment in the heist of a lifetime, but things have gone sideways. Bullets are coming from all directions, so you need to think and act quickly. Find your friends. Keep your head down. And don't tip your hand. Never Bring a Knife is a social deduction game with less talking and more shooting from our friends at Atlas Games. In Never Bring a Knife, each player has a secret role, cop or criminal. Pay attention to figure out who's on your team, then work together to take down the opposition. When the first player falls, their whole team loses and the other team wins. Never Bring a Knife is fast, it's action-packed, and it has duffel bags full of cash. Actual duffel bags full of cash not included. It's also available in friendly local game stores and online starting Friday, January 17th. Stop in and pick up your copy or go to atlas-games.com slash never bring a knife. Or follow the link in the show notes. Because guns and money always make game night more fun. The patter of knuckle bones, the delicate chink of ceramic figurines, the delicious dish of pistachios and slivered almonds, and a bubbling... Oh, no, that's still Mountain Dew. I was worried it was absent there for a second. <laughs> yes, it's it's the special new Mountain Dew with Fujone. <laughs> right. Uh, Odilon Redon gazes down, coming alive, as it were, in our dreams, because he is welcoming us not just to the gaming hut, but to a Yellow King role-playing game special edition, not just of the gaming hut, but of the entire podcast to celebrate its arrival in retail. Fingers crossed, everybody. Yes, it's been a, a long and epic journey, but uh, Kickstarter backers now have their uh, books. And barring some other aspect of, uh, you know, sometimes when you make a giant, beautiful book uh, and, or, and books about a cursed book, perhaps there's a curse, but I'm sure this curse will not result in uh, any further delays, and you'll be able to get a Yellow King role-playing game uh, at the Pelgrim Press web store or at your uh, top friendly retailer, if not uh, the moment you hear this shortly thereafter. And by this, we mean, of course, this entry in the gaming hut, courtesy of beloved Patreon backer Ken Ringwald, who asks... I would like to hear a whole gaming hut on character time mechanics in RPGs and how the Yellow King RPG handles this differently than previous games. And now we've talked a little bit about time as a resource in an earlier episode. Yes, but this today, is the episode that may have contained the hint that Ken is so uh, obligingly picking up on here. So, uh, as I've said before, the uh, thing about time as a resource in role-playing games is that it often fails to account for the fact that time is extremely fungible and often under the control of the players. So that, uh, for example, a rule that envisions that you can only cast one fireball a day, uh, the players can uh, get around that by going, well, we just wait for a day. Now, it's not a total hose in that the GM or DM in that case, I guess, can then do something about that. He can have, uh, you know, enemies come Bad at things you. happening in the other 23 hours and 45 minutes. Right. Uh, but particularly in, and in also the meaning of time in a game and the cost of time is genre dependent. So that in a F20 sort of dungeon crawling environment. Traditionally, the players have a lot of control over time and they're the sort of the aggressors. They're the ones going into the environment and they're determining uh, when they rest and when they don't. And the idea of resting to get your stuff back is not so much a question of time management per se, but rather, do you risk going one encounter over the line? And uh, that there's sort of also a kind of a, an agreed group contract uh, that says uh, that we won't push this too much and make it seem too weird. So we're not going to stop for a day between every encounter because that would be dumb. And so we're just not going to hose it in that way. In 
a, uh, a mystery or investigative uh, setup, which is where we get to Yellow King role-playing game, because, of course, it's a gumshoe game of investigative reality horror. The fact that there is a mystery that you have to solve makes time both a penalty but also a complication for the designer trying to figure out how to treat it as a resource, uh, because... Uh, Ken, as I'm sure that you can now uh, explain in greater detail, the fact that there's a thing that you have to investigate means that there's a ticking clock, if not against disaster, uh, against other things as well. So what are the consequences of, you know, just wasting time to recover from stuff in a, in a mystery scenario. I mean, in a mystery scenario, the classic thing that happens if you uh, uh, dink around and don't investigate is that another murder happens or another bad thing of whatever sort you're investigating. So if you're investigating Jack the Ripper, he kills again. If you're investigating a daring artifact thief, he daringly steals an artifact that you have a proprietary interest in, perhaps. If there is a evil necromancer raising zombies, he raises another graveyards with the zombies. You are in the sort of classical structure of the mystery. You're investigating a uh, danger to or unraveling of order. Uh, that danger grows. That unraveling increases because you have not uh, closed off the loop the way that you're supposed to as the hero of a mystery. In addition, your time that things take can also uh, do other things. It can, for example, erode your credibility with the cops. If you're working with the cops, it can erode your credibility with the local church. If their parishioners are coming and saying, who's stopping all these murders? It's not those jerks, those murder hobos. Why they have murder right in their name. And, and so there's other social costs to doing nothing, just as there are in the real world to doing nothing. They are amped up, I think, in games, because games are meant to be a heightened representation. Plenty of people do nothing their whole life, and nothing bad ever happens to them. Um, yes, but uh, the, many of us aspire to do nothing yes, for a long period of time. That is quite frankly the dream. Um, and that is the reward. But then we're not uh, uh, Seamus's or uh, our fighters. students uncovering the yellow sign in Paris. Right. So the um, origins of uh, the way that time is handled in uh, Quickshot Gumshoe come from Gumshoe one-to-one, and Quickshot Gumshoe uh, is a way of taking uh, some of the ideas in one-to-one and radically reshaping them in order to make them interesting and fun in back in a multiplayer game. And it is uh, one-to-one that begins the mechanism that you then see translated into uh, Yellow King, where you get cards representing uh, bad things that have happened to you uh, that have a lingering effect. In one-to-one, -one, they're called uh, problem cards. And the uh, idea then is, well, how do you get rid of the problem? And one of the ways you do that is that you take time. And so taking time is then defined and built into uh, the scenario. At, you know, If your uh, car gets banged up, uh, you have to take time to go and get it fixed. And so, uh, and of course, again, in our real lives, uh, having your, your car smashed up is a big inconvenience and, uh, and takes a long time to deal with. Um, and so uh, that would be the same for uh, a, a detective on a case. And it's a very film noir thing or a very uh, hard-boiled detective thing to have happen to you, right? And so the car that reflects the card that reflects damage to your car says that you can get rid of it by taking time. And then the, the scenario defines what happens if you take time at various points. And you've listed those consequences of what that would be. In Quickshot Gumshoe for Yellow King role-playing game, uh, instead of uh, problem and edge cards, uh, there are uh, injury and shock cards uh, reflecting uh, physical and emotional damage, respectively. And uh, these, again, uh, have various uh, ill effects, uh, and uh, you get them in various ways, and you can discard them in various ways. Some of them are super nasty. You can't discard them uh, in the course of a scenario or, or in an extreme case. Uh, there's one that has no ill effect other than the fact that you can never get rid of it. It's like a permanent <laughs> injury card. Which, which is bad because if you have a certain number of cards, then you are dead or so incapacitated that you can no longer continue as a player character. So obviously you don't want to fill up a card slot. Exactly. Mechanically speaking. And so uh, if there is a card that has a discard condition, you are heavily incentivized to pursue that. And not all of the discard conditions are time related. Other ones will just require you to perform an action. But since the point of the cards is that they have to have a lingering effect, they all have to be written so that you can't get rid of them immediately because that is no fun unless there's a couple of exceptions where you can just pay a couple of points to get rid of a card, but then that's another cost unto itself. And right. you have the 
option of paying those points. And in some cases, you may not have those points to spend, um, in which case that becomes uh, a much worse thing. But a lot of the time, uh, cards have an, a, a time cost. A, an amount of time has to elapse before you can get rid of them with or without fulfilling another condition. You might have to also have X time uh, expire and then receive a first aid success given to you by another uh, character. Or you might have to, you know, have, uh, you know, within two hours, you have to go to the hospital or, or uh, what have you. And the whole point of the cards is that, you know, they're potentially as many of them as, as designers can think up. Uh, and there isn't a, a limited set of them. So you can keep creating interesting little effects with this sort of uh, exceptions-based system. So then this brings around the question of what is time? What is a time that feels costly? Uh, what is a time that feels appropriate to what some of the effects are? And uh, it then... Uh, and past gumshoe games have had some sort of time trigger thing, so it's your key to intervals, which is the amount of time that elapses between you're getting one core clue, a major bit of information that um, can move you to a next scene, uh, or another. Um, and so that is a fungible amount of time. It's undefined, but it's usually a significant part of play. And what Quickshock does is that it still uses intervals in some cases, but it also uses a world time and table time because sometimes you want the cost to reflect what's happening in the world and it just makes more sense that way. But in other times, you want to ensure that the players are feeling the effect of this card for a certain period. And that means the time you spend around the game table, no matter how much time, whether it's five minutes or five days that elapses for the characters. So, for example, the injury card Tipsy, uh, which you get if you uh, overindulge in alcohol and uh, fail your uh, health uh, test, the discard condition is discard after two hours world time or after a test to avoid injury. So one part of that is while you can uh, go off and get in more trouble, and then, you know, the fact that you were nearly injured, that can sober you up yeah. right quick. Um, but yes. it doesn't just, make just any... Just like at any bar, you, you get tipsy, then you get in a fight, then you're fine. Exactly. That's that's how drinking works. Yeah. But it also doesn't make any sense whatsoever in the reality of the world for you to be tipsy for, you know, any longer than the normal human system would allow. Right. There's another card called It Looks Worse Than It Is. Uh, which is just simply the discard condition is discard after six hours world time. And so again, this is to reflect a relatively minor injury that should have uh, some uh, impact. In this case, the impact is on the other characters who are horrified by your appearance of having been beaten up and lose composure points. Uh, but then after that, Again, it makes no sense for that to, to go on uh, forever. On the other hand, there's a card called Ravage by the Elements, which is what happens if you fail your health test uh, when you're suffering exposure of some sort. And uh, in that case, after an hour of table time, you get a chance to roll a die and uh, either discard or trade for an even worse card. <laughs> and in that instance, the sort of injury that you take from exposure to the environment is one where you feel that there's no set time uh, medically that you would suffer, but th th in terms of your character being seen to be disadvantaged by it, you want the players to kind of sit in that for a while and know that's a thing. And it would make just as much sense for, you know, after uh, suffering frostbite for you to still be uh, poorly after three days as it would uh, three hours, given that being injured in a game is unrealistic anyway, that often... Right. The, 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 no one is going off to spend two weeks in a hospital, which ha happens pretty much any time you're seriously injured. Right. But that would slow down your monster hunt, of course. It would slow down your monster hunt. So what uh, happens in, in the source material, in fiction, is usually that injury really affects you once. There's a lingering after effect. It's a big deal once. And then you sort of shrug it off and, and forget about it in sort of a, a, a John Woo hero uh, fashion. And that's what we're going for here rather than, you know, a realistic the medical uh, reality. Um, and again, for the shocks, the, uh, the things that reflect psychic or emotional damage, um, sometimes uh, you want them to go away with uh, uh, a table time, but other times uh, uh, world time. So uh, another table time example is 
uh, the price of failure, uh, which is a card that you take when you uh, do something really badly and feel personal sh shame about it. Um, and incidentally, this reflects the way that uh, Quick Shock is not just traditional insanity, but rather re reflects a wider range of uh, emotional, emotional state. states that can uh, make your character uh, over time as they accumulate. If you get too many of them at once, you just say, ah, that's it for yellow uh, sign hunting. I'm, I'm out of here. But at any rate, the, the price of failure, uh, you can discard by pursuing a lead the team first learned of more than an hour ago. And so this is a reward for remembering a dropped thread and picking up on it because Conveniently enough, a lot of the discard conditions are keyed to behaviors that, uh, as a designer, I want to encourage. But again, it can't go away immediately. You can't just get the card and then go, okay, what's the what's our most recently dropped plot thread? You have to go through the thought process of waiting an hour at the table with the other players before then uh, seizing on a drop plot thread. And what if there isn't one? Well, then you have to wait uh, longer because, again... Uh, shame at having spectacularly failed is not something that has a set time limit we associate with it. And so the broader uh, intent then is to nail down more uh, why an effect uh, would last, what sort of time period it should take, and what feelings you have uh, around it, and uh, to be more uh, specific and harder to get around in both cases. So uh, I think by and large, we could say that a table time penalty is a more serious penalty and a world time penalty because it can be controlled by the player to a greater extent is a less serious penalty. Although obviously you, you could imagine a world time penalty where you have it for a year and a day, like a fairy curse, or you have it something that's very, very serious and will be, you know, very, very crucially bad the next scene, no matter how fast you advance the clock. And likewise, figure a table time thing that is just sort of a, a nagging inconvenience, like um, surrounded by a miasma of flies, which is bad, but is not like a like a crippling injury. It's just a, an ongoing effect because, again, you touched the Pazuzu amulet and now you're stuck. Right. And in general, uh, world time takes more control for the GM to exercise to make it an actual penalty. Uh, but mm -hmm. if, you know, someone is, as always, if someone is really determined to mess up a system, they could, you know, make yes. their table time go slower by sucking the GM into a discussion of, uh, you know, that thing they can't stop talking about. You know, you could right. introduce, uh, you know, an hour's worth of pop culture digressions. Yeah. But or, or just, you know, making big eyes and saying, but Ken, I don't understand about Alexander the Great's tactical genius. Could you explain <laughs> it to us? Yes. And, and then it is on the unnamed GM in that scenario to, <laughs> to be yeah. aware of uh, the, th that potential pitfall and go, I see what you're doing. Yeah, and also, Mr. Has a card. Of, yes. I'll give you two minutes of that now and an hour right. at the end of play. At the end of play. And uh, speaking of the end of play, it. I think it's probably about the end uh, of this segment and it's time to move on uh, to the next one. They tried to suppress it. They tried to contain it. They left it for months on a loading dock in Estonia. But it's finally out at the Pelgrane Press web store or a top retailer near you. The most ambitious project yet from gumshoe master Robin D. Laws. The Yellow King role-playing game. Six pounds and four books of uncanny and exciting innovation wrapped together in an enthralling slipcase. Inspired by Robert W. Chambers' classic tales of reality horror. Reality, you say? We've got four of them to drive your terrified players through. Bellapoc, Paris, where art students navigate its absinthe-soaked demimonde, investigating gargoyles, vampires, and decadent alien royalty. The wars, where weirdness-savvy soldiers fight for survival and gnosis on the eerie shifting battlefield of Europe's 1947 Continental War. Aftermath, where former partisans mop up the otherworldly remnants of the hundred-year tyranny they helped to defeat. This is normal now, our ordinary present day. 
or is it? Spoiler, it is not. Featuring the debut of Quick Shock Gumshoe. Where physical injuries and mental shocks don't just tick down as abstract points. They haunt you as fiendish cards with debilitating effects and tricky discard conditions. Add it to your cart with Absinthe and Carcosa, a stunning full-color found object player-facing guide to 1890s Paris. And The Missing and the Lost, Robin's novel of intrigue and parageometry set in the aftermath reality. Get the Yellow King role-playing game. Before it gets you. If cursed, do not return to store. For a limited time only, save up to $23 when you bundle Yellow King products at the Pelgrane Press store with the voucher code YELLOW. Get 15% off all Yellow King items when you combine the core game with Absinthe in Carcosa and or The Missing and the Lost. That's the voucher code YELLOW at pelgrainepress.com slash shop. It's time once more to rummage in the dusty archives for the crime blotter. And this time it's a, not just a dusky archive, but it's one where I want to be pretty careful about the bindings on the books uh, yeah. that I look at. Uh, Do not rummage with bare hands, I'm going to say. Yes. And uh, uh, this is, in keeping with our uh, Yellow King special, a, a crime that rocked Belle Epoque Paris uh, a few years before the uh, 1895 uh, a date uh, that the action takes place in the role-playing game, but is still very much uh, in people's minds as a thing that happened and tells you about Paris. And also uh, two of the major figures in it are people that you can interact with as informants or uh, antagonists or even as uh, patrons. And that is the skin affair. And uh, this is a a police scandal that comes as the after effect of a murder that was itself uh, a huge big deal that uh, gripped Paris. And uh, this is an era where its tabloid press or its equivalent of the tabloid press already exists. One of the fascinating things about this period uh, in Paris, even a little more so than in London, is that all of the stuff that we associate with the present day is all beginning to happen from migration from other countries to uh, the uh, advent of uh, technology and electrification. And in this case, a crime of the century, where that crime is the 19th century. And the uh, victim, Ken, was uh, Regine de Monti. And uh, she was a, uh, a Paris courtesan. Uh, and I guess uh, the next thing we'll need to hear about is the wh what that meant in the context of Parisian society. I mean, uh, well, it, it meant what it what it means always at the very, very basis is that gentleman of means in this case, because she was an upscale courtesan, she was not one of your Kmart courtesans, exchanged money or gifts for her time spent however they uh, mutually agreed to deal it out. Obviously, if you are a, um, a really good courtesan, you get a lot of money for very little personal investment. But uh, as with everything, there there's uh, swings and roundabouts. Um, she had a number of of uh, of wealthy uh, clients. I don't know to what extent they were super influential, but at some point, money buys power. And uh, she also, as it turns out, uh, had a boyfriend who was no better than he should be. Uh, Enrico Pranzini, who was an Italian gigolo and swindler, and he was even a gigolo and swindler in the relentlessly uh, high-minded book on the topic, written by a sociologist who, and I don't want to say that Aaron Freund's show, the author of The Courtesan and the Gigolo, Murders in the Rue Montaigne, The Dark Side of Empire in 19th Century Paris, does not mean to cast a serious and unforgiving eye on the dark side of empire in 19th century Paris, but he does like talking about true crime. And he, he does not mince words about Enrico Pranzini. He's not, uh, he, he points out that he is exoticized and vilified by the Paris press because he was born in Egypt. And he was Italian, which is like two strikes against you already. And that he was used as a model of the seductive Orient by, among other people, anatomy professors. However, Aaron Freundshow also says, yeah, he was pretty much uh, surely guilty. Uh, th yeah. This is not one of those, they got the wrong guy situations. And a, a first grade weasel to boot. Yeah, yes. he was, he was a problem on many, many levels, but this is the, the way that uh, courtesanry uh, operated then and now is right. that. And, uh, and uh, before we continue, I guess one thing I want to slip in is that the reason this became such a sensational case is that 
uh, Regine de Monti was known in Parisian society uh, even before her killing. It wasn't like, oh, we've learned of this uh, person who was killed and that's uh, scandalous and it's got sex and money in it, but rather people of her, of the upper uh, tier of uh, courtesanry were known in society. They sort of, um, they ran their own salons quite often. They appeared in public. People knew who they were. They were talked about in the press. They were celebrities in a way that their equivalents are not in other uh, societies most of the time and certainly aren't uh, today. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, if she existed today, she would have an Instagram account with millions right, yeah, of followers. She'd be an Instagram influencer or maybe a, a really successful contestant on The Bachelor. Right. And so there was a, 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 a huge uh, sort of uh, tension between two rival tracks of society uh, where the uh, women who were, uh, you know, wealthy wives and daughters and were uh, respectable uh, would maintain their own social sphere. And then here on the other side were the courtesans and often... You know, and you would meet up. You would encounter each other at the at the opera or in fine uh, dining establishments, which are just become, beginning to become a thing as well. And so that you, even if you loathed courtesans, you couldn't uh, not meet up with them. So that right. when news uh, came out that she'd been killed uh, and it hit the press, people knew her name yeah. already. It was the, the only other city I think in this era that that same sort of social model operates. Uh, that I know of, I mean, it might've operated this way in Brazil as well is in new Orleans where uh, very upscale courtesans who were by and large non-white as well would have their own social interactions that they would call it. The, the quadroon ball was the big one in, in new Orleans, but white uh, gentry, especially male gentry would go to that ball and uh, a daring uh, young women would go to that ball, even of uh Anglo society because it was a, a bigger, better, more exciting ball than the, the boring cotillions that their moms made them go to. And the same effect happens in Paris, although the uh, Egyptian born Italian gigolos notwithstanding, uh, many of the courtesans were brought in from other parts of the world or had come in from other parts of the world because you could make big money as a courtesan. And there, there was also a market for exoticism and Orientalism in the, in the uh, client community. Uh, although I don't believe Regine de Montiel was anything but a French lady. She and her uh, peers sort of covered the globe of, of the French imperial world so that you could get Algerian uh, courtesans or, or uh, Indo-Chinese courtesans or whatever kind of courtesan your particular uh, yen took you to. The, the argument being that the, 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 the good people society is pure French and uh, Englishmen and, and uh, Belgians with money. And then everybody else would sort of be in the other uh, possibly more exciting courtesan circles. And those circles, as you say, overlapped. Uh, to a fairly significant degree. So when she's murdered, each step in the investigation, and it isn't a straight line to uh, arresting uh, Pranzini, there are other suspects, but uh, each moment <laughs> like is... People who'd left their monogrammed uh, wristwatches in her house. <laughs> yes. Um, it's it's covered feverishly by the uh, various police beat reporters, uh, the most famous of which is uh, Georges Grisson, uh, who is uh, qu quite a character. Uh, he uh, is known for... Uh, uh, his distinctive dress, he uh, swans around Paris in a gray overcoat. Uh, he, he always, uh, he doesn't leave the house without his top hat and white scarf, and he carries a pistol with him whenever he goes. And although he despises the criminal class and is quite scathing toward them in his writing, nonetheless, in gumshoe terms, he has uh, the demimond skill and can get information out of uh, the uh, people from the criminal underworld, and they are all still willing to hobnob with him. So it may be a, it may be that just like celebrities, people in the criminal underworld hate each other even more than they hate people who hate them. Right, <laughs> and and everybody loves a, a swaggering celebrity. So right. uh, just you can imagine uh, him in being uh, a character in any a big city in one of its heydays. You know, there's uh, there's a bit of the New York uh, uh, police reporter, yeah, the Jimmy Breslin type. Yes, except he is quintessentially French and quintessentially uh, a belly pock. Um, right. And after Pranzini is uh, tried and convicted and executed, uh, Grisson, on September 14th of 1887, well, he has a scoop, doesn't he, Ken? Oh, yes. He has quite the scoop. 
he reveals, and this is why it is called the skin affair, not the sad dead courtesan affair, that at least three of the uh, investigating personnel in the case, the police chief of the Surete, Ernest Taylor, the deputy chief of the Surete, Francois Goran, and the presiding inspector, Gustave Rossignol, had card cases and possibly books bound from the human skin of uh, Enrico Pranzini after he's executed. And that they went into the morgue and they said, oh, just a little off the top. And they uh, and they had uh, wallets and whatnot made out of his skin. And this was, as you might imagine, as it would be now, a gigantic scandal. And this there would was, be a scandal even today. Even today, even in our jaded era, if we heard that um, uh, the, the chief of the Miami police had uh, wandered away with a wallet made of the skin of an executed murderer, we might have one or two words to say about that. And indeed they did. It was, it was a, a, the, the people of Paris, according to uh, Frenchu, who I don't know, open up their newspapers uh, with a big Grisson story. And they're like, well, at least it won't be about that Pranzini murder anymore. That's settled. <laughs> and then, oh my goodness, how is it even worse? And this uh, became a gigantic, I, and I think literally a nine days wonder in that it, the story sort of ran for nine days as people uh, accused each other of things. Inspector Rossignol uh, said, oh, that was not Nothing. Every journalist took uh, pieces of skin off of Pranzini's corpse. It was like a mob scene. And the journalists liked the thigh skin best. Yes. Classic scandal management. It's like, we didn't do it. Oh, we did it. Oh, everybody does it. Oh, everybody does <laughs> Business it. Business as usual. And then the part where, I love the part where this is supposed to exonerate them of mistreating a corpse is, oh, we let journalists come take skin off. It was cool. <laughs> that, that's yes. not the point. There were more people who had skin books than got named. The point is not you hogged all the skin to yourself. <laughs> the point is you're hideous ghouls. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that, that again is like, well, that's the, well, everybody does it to defense, right? Yeah. Which is what you use when you've run out of defenses. Exactly. And then there's a twist, a beautiful twist in the matter. Um, and I don't know how much of this Robin Yud intended to go into, but I'm fascinated by it. Um, Deputy Chief Goran decides to use the notoriety, the fact that is no such thing as bad publicity, to screw over his boss, Chief uh, of the Surete, Ernest Taylor. And he goes to Grisson and basically feeds him all the inside information. And then Grisson does a series of big puff pieces about how Goran is a misunderstood hero and that he, Grisson, feels terrible about having cast mud on the career of this fine public servant who served in Algeria and stopped all these other criminals and was a great and crusading cop. And how come there's no respect for law and order anymore? And then... Goron feeds Grisson a different, bigger, better scandal to get the skin thing off the front pages of high officials who were selling uh, the Legion of Honor commendations, the highest honor in, in French military. And they were just selling them out of the military and out of the higher reaches of the bureaucracy so that. Now there's an even bigger scandal that the the, the sacred uh, military dead of France are being similarly uh, abused, at least morally. And that forces not just the resignation of the Surete chief Taylor, but also the president of France has to step down because of that scandal. And that sort of, well, when, when life gives you an anthropodermic wallet scandal, use that to, to rocket to the heights of power. And uh, I think Goran becomes head of the Surete for a bit, although eventually... He does become head of the Surete. But even better than that, by the time uh, the art student player characters in uh, the Paris sequence of the Yellow King role-playing game are out and about, he's even better than the head of the Surete, which, of course, is a character you can't, uh, as just, you know, obscure American art students you can't interact with. He's now a private eye and author. Uh, and so after he uh, uh, himself is bounced from that post, and it's an easy post to get bounced from. Apparently. he uh, uh, And there's another notorious uh, murder case that he investigates between the Skin Affair and uh, the 1895 date, uh, which we'll probably get to in a later uh, podcast. <laughs> what are the odds? <laughs> yes. The uh, Jouffet case of a murdered bailiff found in a blood-soaked trunk. Um, so uh, he's now 
scrabbling for a living. He's working as a private eye. He's an author and therefore uh, someone else who uh, will, uh, you can find him uh, gobbling his meals. Uh, he was a famous uh, uh, fast eater with a, a rapid fire uh, speech. So, uh, you know, if you can get Sandy Peterson to, to drop in and do a guest performance as, <laughs> as Garone, mm -hmm. that would be great. He might be a patron for your uh, characters. He might have information for them. He might uh, be covering for a client that they don't uh, that they need information from. So again, another uh, super colorful character, and uh, like uh, Grisson, also very available to be uh, a character in a supernatural mystery set in Paris in 1895. I mean, would you like to hear another fun fact about Marie Francois Garand while we're on the topic? I I, be I believe that's a rhetorical question. Okay, he wrote uh, not just his exciting memoirs. But he also wrote, along with another guy named Emile Gautier, a trilogy of science fiction pirate crime novels about an alchemist who runs a secret criminal organization and has a flying machine. And I personally feel like if that does not... He also wrote about an adventurous bear, but that's a bit more on point. He can have all the human skin wallets he wants, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. <laughs> That's um, uh, that's a guy, and yes. uh, if you it's are sadly not translated, uh, no, it is. It Brian is. Sableford has translated them. Ah, yeah. well, I I guess I've either failed to find that, or perhaps that has happened since I did the research. Well, mm -hmm. he wrote it in 190 something or other, so right. it's not immediately relevant. But if you're doing a repair of reputations type situation where there is a weird futury Paris with ouvre mort de volontaire buildings, and uh, maybe there's also uh, flying machines built by this crazy madman. Hmm, I sense some prefiguring of the next segment. But also, uh, you can just do what I do with uh, Gaston LaRue, uh, is that you can have events happen in 1895 that then become the inspiration right. for the yeah, later. Yeah, there's an alchemical statement. mastermind running around Paris. He's got to be running around in 1895. Right. Okay. We're, we're just turning into the next segment. So let's we are. Let's, let's get a commercial and, and get that next segment formally started. The best of Asphageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astvageln on DriveThru. Ward off the otherwise inevitable curse of the yellow sign by chipping in alongside beloved Patreon backers Ben Vincent, Oren Gashori, Peter Williamson, Raphael Pabst, and Thomas Edward. It's time once again to regret that I have not looked up what is French for Ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Ruth Tillman, beloved Patreon backer and co-author, asks Ken and Robin... Chambers' fiction sometimes included a futuristic mechanical aspect, perhaps most famously the suicide machine. Aesthetically, how do you introduce strange machineries into the 1890s Paris art scene of a YKRPG game without swerving into steampunk? What might be sources of inspiration outside steampunk? My brain goes to the Doctor Who episode, Girl in the Fireplace, but I may be off there. Robin, is she off there? Where does your brain go? Ooh, a la steampunk, etc. Right. Well, the question of uh, how not to swerve into steampunk then gets in the question of how do you define steampunk, mm -hmm. <laughs> which would then uh, spin us off in a whole other direction. So uh, the first thing that my mind goes to is Jules Verne and uh, the idea that there are Jules Verne-y things happening uh, in the background. And the way that you can 
uh, realize this in your uh, Yellow King setting is the idea that the intrusion of the play, the King in Yellow, has a reality shattering as well as a, a mind warping effect. And as is developed later in the game, causes uh, different uh, alternate realities to spin off, the reality of repair of reputations where it has actually happened. And also there's the idea that there's a an alternate world war that your characters become embroiled in in the second part in the wars, and that that very much has Jules Verne sort of war machines right. rampaging across uh, Europe. And the suggestion is that uh, these things did not exist in history until the book was published in 1895 and retroactively made some of the earlier things, including the existence of Captain Nemo, true in the timeline. Um, and uh, because it is a magical slash alien reality shattering effect, this can be as present or not, or intermittently present in your uh, game as you desire. Uh, so you might indeed have a scenario where uh, at the Paris Exposition, there's a demonstration of a prototype version of one of the war machines that will come along later. Um, and then uh, once you solve the, the mystery, it goes away, at least for a while. Um, and that's sort of in keeping with the, the story where the calcification technology, uh, remind me which one that is. The, uh, the mask. The mask. Um, that is sort of a weird science uh, story where that exists for that amount of time. And you just assume, as in most weird science stories, that if someone came in and investigated that and solved it, that the that technology would go away so that you can create things that are quite outlandish and even quite public. And then just as in Doctor Who, for example, there's a there's huge alien invasions all the time and then people just forget about them and carry on. Uh, as if nothing ever happened, which sometimes they justify and sometimes they don't. Uh, you can have that happening in in Paris with the idea that uh, industrialization itself has been warped by the influence of Carcosa. And, and again, um, getting away from steampunk seems like putting a little more effort on yourself than you need, given that the whole steampunk aesthetic is basically the Belle Epoque aesthetic. Um, and it was all created you know, not just by the Belle Epoque artist, but by Walt Disney when he made Walt Disney's version of uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. That that beautiful Nautilus is the steampunk aesthetic, and it is the 1890s aesthetic to to the degree, which is why Walt's people used it. Yeah, as long as there's not a top hat with goggles on it, you're good. Right, yeah. They're, they're building the Eiffel Tower during that murder investigation of the Skin Affair. Uh, that is as steampunk as it gets. It's a giant mechanical tower that, that's uh, that's going up, and it's going to be electrified, and it's going to shine lights everywhere. Uh, steampunk is is really the aesthetic, and the question is, if you're trying to stay away from the aesthetic of steampunk, then you need to to not just introduce the machinery and the technology and whatever. I mean, for example, there's no reason to assume that the suicide booths in your future Paris have big rotating knives like they do in the aftermath ones. They might be the place like in Maupassant where you go in and you smell the flowers that you remember loving best and then you die. And it's a gas situation. There's no chopping anybody up at all. Um, so you can move it toward a symbolist uh, affect. And rather than it being lots of giant mechanical whatnots, make sure that there's lots of biology and fur and things that are luxurious and a little over the top. Um, and rather than having uh, robots, maybe they've got uh, orangutan people because they've uh, realized that the murders in the Rue Morgue were terrific. And you can have all manner of different approaches that are not just rivets and bronze but i would say don't flip away from rivets and bronze just because you feel like that's steampunk i mean again to an extent that's the milieu in the 1890s and to go away from that uh sort of technophilia and electrophilia i guess electricity is another thing that's not uh always present in steampunk and if you em emphasize the elect electricity aspect and even sort of prefigure uh, maybe the digital age with, with some of the notions of lights talking to each other. Uh, that would be another way to sort of dive around steampunk, but I'm just not sure that you need to just take one of the really cool things that everyone loves about 1890s Paris and draw it, you know, just 
take it right off the table at the beginning, right? Yeah, I think you would have to identify what is it that you're thinking of when you don't like steampunk or don't want this involved. And I think a part of it is the, uh, this is the Belle Epoque rather than the Victorian era. Yes, of course, those two things are happening in par parallel. But uh, if your references are to uh, French culture rather than English culture during the same period, I think that will get you yeah. a lot you'll, of the you'll same be, you'll way. Be, you'll be sexier as opposed to um, Scottisher. Right. No, no offense to any sexy Scots out there. Yes. But yeah, you show up at a, at, a, at a function wearing goggles on your top hat, you'll just be mocked by courtesans. That's what will happen. Exactly. And as, as we know, they're uh, highly socially influential and you will be shamed. They are. Have to right. go and hang out with the wives. You don't want that. No. Yeah, and I guess part of uh, what other people think about it, steampunk is that it has an anime overlay on it. And just you know, de-overlay it. Use uh, period photos and stuff, and uh, keep the idea that uh, this is not a quaint time of uh, hand-tooled pre-electricity technology. This is the beginning of the modern age. This is uh, this is Edison and Tesla and uh, on all that. Uh, uh, crazy stuff happening. So and, and, and I do recommend, you know, trying to, first of all, come up with the aesthetic for your Carcosa, which will not be steampunk anyway, and using that as a color, as a uh, methodology. So if your notion is that Carcosa is got a lot of, uh, of, of coils and tubes, use that instead of whatever you were thinking of. Or if your notion is Carcosa has got a lot of mirrors and lenses, maybe that's what your Carcosa things look like. The other thing is we were talking about Brian Stableford earlier, he has translated approximately, I don't know, 150 French adventure novels, roughly from that era. Just go to any Brian Stableford location, your Amazons or whatever, and start reading. And they will be things that are not part of your head in the way that Sherlock Holmes and Dracula are, that, that not even Jules Verne is in those, because Jules Verne of course, begins in the 1870s, and uh, a lot of these are coming from a little bit later. But again, it's it's like you say, French rather than British. Uh, think about that as your core aesthetic, and that will help you at least move away from Anglophile steampunk or Anglophone steampunk. Right, and there's there's less sort of reserve about uh, uh, touchy subjects uh, in uh, French pulp fiction at this time, right. and so uh, the the quaintness. Uh, the old timiness that you might associate with uh, Conan Doyle and his circle uh, is is not in evidence there. And and basically, yeah. you know, uh, I think that's the other answer is just dirty it up uh, yeah. <laughs> with the the real social milieu of uh, of Paris. Uh, well, I think uh, we're going to get dirtied up if we don't keep going in this All Yellow King special episode. So let's check in with our uh, final exciting commercial, which just may also be uh, relevant to this subject, and then come right on back and see what lies on the other side. Have you found the yellow sign? The King in Yellow, Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book, has inspired millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Arc Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold foil embossing and a leather cover in the black snakeskin pattern that Chambers described. A foreword by John Scott Tynes sets the stage. Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of every tale. Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated King in Yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins. It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.arcdream.com. So, an embarrassingly long uh, period of time ago, uh, the uh, consulting occultist was embarked on a series of uh, episodes about the uh, Belle Epoque occult. And uh, you can uh, in, uh, sort of create, you can curate your own wrap-up episode by going back and uh, go, uh, checking out uh, past episodes to get the uh, skinny on a number of key figures. Uh, we actually covered Josephine Peladon, uh, another major uh, 
uh, Parisian occultist of the era, uh, just as I was beginning uh, work on The Yellow King. And that was in episode 267. Then in uh, episode 319, we started our series proper with uh, Leo Taxil, the great uh, trickster of the occult and a uh, talk about your figures that prefigure existing uh, people. Uh, Alberto Roja was in uh, 320, Jules Duanel in 321, and uh, Camille Flammarion, the psychic investigator and uh, another French science fiction author in 322. And so this time we're going to talk about Gerard and Kaus, also known, better known, self-known as Papoose. But not like a little Indian baby, like the weird magical word uh, made up by Eliphas Levy, or possibly by uh, a medieval uh, grimoireist, which means physician. But it is the genius of the first hour in the Nook Demeron. So there you go. Play that over on your. Um, uh, that's why I usually pronounce it papus as opposed to papoose anyway. Right. <laughs> uh, but the sources, or at least the one source I looked at, said that it is pronounced papoose. Oh, I'm not saying it's not. I'm saying I'm how saying I pronounce it. you choose it. not to. It's <laughs> yeah. the, the, the curly crowley thing yet again. Yes, except that I actually have a sneaking love for uh, Papoose. So um, that's a different thing. Right. So he uh, lives until 1916 in uh, the period of the Yellow King in 1895. He's 30 years old. He does not quite look as much like Brian Blessed playing a wizard as he will one day. But he's still reasonably wizardy. He's got the beard for it. Yes, he does. Definitely has a beard for it. And uh, so he is sort of the uh, the connector, the maven, the flibberty gibbet of uh, the Parisian occult scene. He knows everybody. He hangs out with everybody. He throws salons. He's uh, gregarious. He's outgoing. Uh, he might have a gig for the bell lettrist, the sort of journalist character, and uh, therefore is a, a someone that you are very highly likely to meet and talk to if you're looking for occult clues. But of course, the occult clues that he gives you will be filtered through his particular occult belief system. The Yellow King book calls him the founder of Martinism in order to not have uh, 3,000 words on what exactly that means. In fact, uh, right. he's not the first Martinist, but he's the one who founds his particular He Martinist. founds the current order of Martinists. Yes. Right. He's the one who, who calls his organization that. So, uh, mm -hmm. Ken, Martinism, uh, we've discussed it before, but what is it? <laughs> uh, Martinism is uh, based on the works of Martine de Pascali, who is a, a French magician who basically was trying to come up with a fancier version of masonry. It's a very Christian sort of version of ma masonry because Martin believed that uh, the um, the Masons were a little bit atheist for him. And he wanted to make sure that when you work a Masonic working, you rise up in the Masonic ranks, you are recapitulating the reintegration of mankind into the divine order. And you are doing that uh, just like Jesus wanted you to, not in some sort of uh, filthy agnostic fashion. Uh, and then that's sort of his, his way. And so it's a, a Christian mysticism, but it's also straight up masonry. So there's a degree of meditation. There's a, a, a lot of other sorts of concepts. And he comes up with a very, I, what do I want to say? Sticky way to organize his lodges so that, uh, even regular masonry begins to sort of look at Martin's lodges and say, well, that's, that's a, that's a good pattern. Um, and then of course he, he's a flair up, for the theatrical, and, right? Uh, and he does come up with the notions of unknown superiors, uh, which is, uh, one of the things that, uh, takes off like a, like a rocket in masonry. Right. right. Because he spends uh, a lot of his early formative years hanging around with theosophists. He mm -hmm. ultimately thinks, well, this is too Eastern for me. I this need... is Papus we're talking about, not Martin by now. Yes. Yeah. And so, uh, and so Papus, uh, Papus <laughs> decides, uh, he starts off as a, as a theosophist and, and then he, uh, then, uh, sort of goes his own, uh, way while still being in touch with everybody. But the idea of, there, there's a lot of the structural elements of, of Blavatsky in, in what he's, uh, doing. Um, and so he, over the years, he creates a number of, different groups and is a member of other people's groups. Uh, his group is the uh, group Independent de Etudes Esoteriques, the Independent Occult Study Group. And so his uh, version of the, the Masonic order is that you can, uh, when you're first recruited, you become a servant of work. 
and you uh, graduate through the ranks of equerry knight and commander. So it has that sort of militaristic, uh, aristocratic uh, air to it because uh, the Martinists are uh, arch conservatives who believe that uh, being an arch conservative and an occultist uh, go perfectly well together, which is not necessarily what the French cardinals. <laughs> it is pretty much the opposite of what the French cardinals yes. believe to their to their limited credit. And in uh, in Coase, Papus is also at the same time as he's rising in the magic magical and masonry. Uh, fields. He's also getting his medical degree and his, in fact, PhD in anatomy. And he opens up a medical clinic and he's doing quite well for himself as a, a doctor, which is possibly why he picked Papus as his uh, pseudonym way back in the day. Uh, but he is, um, uh, like you say, he's a, a, an inveterate joiner. And so he winds up in the Eglise Gnostique de France, which is an attempt to reestablish the Cathars. Um, he is studying, like I mentioned, the works of Eliphas Lévy, the great mid-century French occultist, and is trying to sort of uh, boil them down and give them a spin for sort of modern uh, audiences with uh, books like L'Occultisme uh, and L'Occultisme Contemporain, and so uh, Traité Méthodique de Science Occulte. He's writing a bunch of uh, stuffs about magical science in an attempt to and again, I think to his credit, to be fairly open about what's going on. It, it's very much in that sort of, um, uh, it's, it's not quite golden dawn in that the goal, and, and he does have secrets, but it's much more of the sort of Paul Christian, uh, let's just lay it out. Here's how magic works. It's, it's a magical science like everything is. And if you just use the habits of mind and, and, uh, and are contemplative, you'll be able to, uh, understand it. It's not a, I'm better than you type situation with, with Papus. It's, it's more of a let's all do magic together type attitude. He's about providing information, which, uh, which exactly. these player characters need. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, to that end, he also, uh, uh founded and co-edits a, a monthly journal, L'Initiation, uh, copies of which are still, uh, available. Uh, you can see, uh, facsimiles online and therefore create handouts to show, uh, to your players that they're cool covers and stuff. And this is, a, uh, a source of, uh, it contains the gossip, the hot goss in the mm -hmm. uh, occult community. Because one thing that we know about occultists, Ken, is that they love feuding with each other. Oh, do they? So if you can't go to him uh, for the gossip, you can go to his, uh, his magazine, which is basically, uh, in, in addition to uh, providing gnosis, is also sort of uh, between the lines as the national inquirer of the uh, French occult scene. And he's also, because again, buddies with everyone, he studies magic under our old friend, uh, the Marquis Saint-Yves d'Alvedra, who we talked about when we talked about synergy way the heck back whenever episode that was. And so he is therefore inserted into uh, radical conservative politics as well as occult conservative politics. And it is via that study, perhaps, that he winds up in Russia when he goes to visit the Tsar. And he does that after our period. He visits Russia in 1901. He's basically summoned by Tsar Nicholas. And because he's a magician and a physician, he, he cooks on both burners. And uh, the Tsar loves him. And he is there providing all manner of helpful information. He is an uh, opponent of Rasputin. You'll be glad to know. Doesn't like him. Um, and he also doesn't like the hated British. He urges the Tsar to keep an eye out for British agents. And the British uh, then spread the rumor, which may or may not, may not have been true, that he was connected with the French Deuxième Bureau and was sort of acting as a at, at least as an agent of influence and possibly as a spy. He was accused of being a player character, frankly. <laughs> exactly. And in, in fairness, I think he kind of was a player character. And then that connection to the czar means that he knew about Ratchkovsky, who we've also discussed, and he attacked Ratchkovsky as a agent of a sinister syndicate attempting to disrupt the Franco-Russian alliance, which doesn't make a lot of sense because Ratchkovsky, of course, is the head of the Okhrana, the Russian secret police in Paris. And there are people who argue that uh, the nature of those articles, which says that the financial conspiracy is run by the Jews means that he and Rachkovsky might have been working, uh, sort of uh, doing a kabuki in which 
Papus would denounce Rachkovsky, but then promulgate the uh, protocols of the elders of Zion uh, that way. And I think that there is room for fair-minded people to say, no, he was not promulgating the protocols, but you can't really say that he didn't say the Jews were behind an attempt to overthrow Russia and France's alliance because he kind of did. So like everyone in that era, there is a, a certain um, uh, unsavory whiff of the anti-Semite about him, just as there is our boy, Robert W. Chambers. So there we have it. Uh, yes. And uh, he was uh, influential just beyond the one occult scene in Paris. Actually, his, independent occult study group at one point had 50 lodges around the world. And uh, one of them was even in Argentina of all places. So mm-hmm. uh, that creates all sorts of additional uh, threads that you can use uh, in later time periods of the Yellow King role-playing game where you can, uh, if you met him and hung out with him and maybe he was even your patron, you can then discover that his uh, descendants of his various lodges are still active uh, either right. in uh, post-Castain America or in our real world uh, or on the battlefields of the Continental War. And in his joining in 1895, he joined the Golden Dawn, the, the uh, t- Paris Temple of the Golden Dawn. So he and Crowley uh, almost certainly would have met. And if you want to introduce Crowley as a, as a villain or an agent of Carcosa, Papus can be the guy who puts you onto him and uh, send, and gives you a mission to, to stop him. Right. And there'll be more on the Golden Dawn in Paris soon uh, in an upcoming episode. And I think now that we're talking about upcoming episodes, it's time for us to exit. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Astvagown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep some skin in the game by throwing in with esteemed Patreon backers. Ethan James. Linda and Mike Schiffer. Peter Nix. Philip Masters. And Chris Farrell. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our hottest new design, Carcosa Fandango. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff.